All right, gang, if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in the Old Testament. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, all right? 1 Samuel 16. I told you earlier, uh, before Jonathan and I kick off a, a five-part marriage series on the Song of Songs, I'm going to spend two weeks here at the beginning of 2019 talking about you and your faith walk, your connection with God, in reference to a man that I so admire in Scripture named David. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the Bible goes to great lengths to uncover and display the faults and failures of all of our heroes. In other words, you don't have to read very long about Abraham or Moses or David today or, or even in the New Testament, uh, uh, Peter or, uh, or Thomas. You don't have to read very long before the Bible uncovers their feet of clay. Now, I think the scripture goes to great length and great detail in doing this primarily for two reasons. Uh, number one, it guards against hero worship. Uh, I'm not going to say that I could ever worship David, but when it comes to Moses and David and Joseph and in the New Testament, Peter and, and Paul, I so admire these men. Great men and women are easily worshiped in other cultures around the world. Why not ours? So I think the reason the scripture points out all their failures, all their flaws, all their blatant immoralities is so that we won't worship them. But there's another and I think more important reason the scripture does this, and that is to show us, to teach us that our problem, the solution to our problem, our sin problem, cannot be found in any of us, even the greatest of us. It must come from God. Now, David lived an outrageous life. Now, I'm not going to stand here at 50 plus and pretend to you that I still have the mindset I had in my 20s, but if you know anything about me when I was a younger man, uh, I was no stranger to adventure. Uh, hanging 100 feet from the ground uh, on the side of a rock by your fingertips, uh, something like that sounded exhilarating. It sounded fun to me before it ever sounded dangerous or difficult. Uh, flying through the air on a motorcycle with no hands, that was uh, exciting and fun to me in my 20s and, and 30s. Barefoot water skiing, have you ever tried this? When you water ski barefoot, you actually hit the water so fast when you fall, you don't even have time to close your eyes. It's brutal. You wonder why anybody would want to do it. Um, hang gliding, jumping from an airplane, uh, the list just goes on and on and on. I wanted to do outrageous things in my 20s and 30s and, oh, I don't know, maybe even on some level today. Uh, I think I've told you this story, but it bears repeating because it's really funny if you can visualize this in your mind. I actually have an old photograph of this somewhere in a photo album, but when I was in college, a buddy of mine named Lance and I, we decided we were going to build a homemade hang glider. Now, he's a pastor out in Texas at this moment, and right now while I'm here with you, he's probably doing the same thing with his church. Uh, but both of us can get on the phone and laugh literally for an hour over this weekend we spent trying to convince ourselves that we could not only build a homemade hang glider, we could fly it, okay? Uh, we took the biggest tarp we could find, and we built a frame under it. We took a 300-foot rappelling rope that we usually use to come down the side of a mountain, and we fashioned a harness with it. We tied that kite. It was, that's what it was, really, a big, heavy, awkward kite. It had no chance of flying, but we were 19 and didn't care. 
And we strung this rope out and tied it to the roll bar on my Jeep, 300 feet now. <clears throat> we were in about a 60-acre hay field, and we spent hours and hours and hours that afternoon trying to get each other airborne. Now, usually the way it went was the guy stood there holding this Frankenstein of a kite, and he gave a wave to the other guy in the Jeep, who then proceeded to mash the gas. Well, you'd run, and your feet would hit the ground about every 20 or 30 feet, and we actually got about 15, maybe even 20 feet in the air, but inevitably, there was zero control. We had no ability to control this monstrous kite, and we would smack to the ground and be drugged along until we could stop. Then the Jeep would kind of circle around, and we'd find out if we were okay. We did this for hours and hours and hours. It's a wonder we didn't both wind up in the hospital, but the excitement, the adventure, the enthusiasm, the outrageous claim that we made a homemade hang glider and flew it matters when you're 18, 19, or 20. Let me ask you a question. What is the most outrageous thing you have ever done? Have you ever jumped from an airplane? Jonathan Hawkins has. You would never know that by looking at Jonathan, wouldn't you? He is like so straight-laced and put together. He leapt from a perfectly good airplane. Have you ever barefoot water skied? We talked about that. Have you ever climbed a mountain? Uh, have you ever been caving? We talked about that last week. What is the most outrageous thing you've ever done? Now, when I use the word outrageous, maybe something a little more darkened comes to your mind, something more sinister. Uh, I have heard some outrageous things in my office or in my position. Uh, a man told me many years ago, uh, Pastor Mike, you wouldn't know this, but I actually gambled away our family house and farm at the height of my addiction gambling. That's pretty outrageous. Uh, a man might say, I lost my father's business and my livelihood due to my addiction to drugs and alcohol. Uh, that is outrageous. Um, I, I, I broke down two families because of my unfaithfulness. I dissolved two marriages because of my infidelity. That is outrageous. The Bible says that there's something inside each of us that's looking for more. We're longing for more, whether it's more possessions, more wealth, more comfort, more security, more adventure, more excitement, more fun. Solomon put it this way, God has planted or imprinted eternity on the hearts of man. So it's natural for us to long for more. It's natural for us to look for more. Perhaps that's what leads us to pursue an unusual life, something above the rest. Whether it's in recreation or your experiences, even in your relationships, it seems to be very important to us as men and women to experience something that's unusual in life or even exceptional. Now, sometimes that leads us to an unhealthy end. It blows up in our faces. But other times, it can lead us to something truly unique and truly remarkable. So today, I want to introduce you to this guy, David. By the way, Paulette and I chose that background. I said, I'm going to do two weeks on David. Let's put something on the screen, maybe one of those statues of David or whatever. I came in this morning, she said, tell me what you think. And she put it up on the screen, this giant head. She said, it looks a little creepy to me. So I hope it doesn't bother you, but I want to introduce you to David. You probably know all about David, or at least the most famous things about David. David as a, a shepherd teenager 
using only a slingshot, brought down the mighty Goliath, took the giant sword and sawed off his head. That's pretty outrageous. Many of you know that David was a poet. Maybe he was a songwriter. Eventually, he became a king. But the thing I want to examine and want you to consider for a minute is David's epitaph is this, a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. That's pretty impressive. That is not, that claim, that statement is not made about anyone else in this book, but it is of David, a man after God's own heart. Here's what I want to do in these first couple of weeks in January 2019. I want to challenge you to crank up your faith walk a little bit. I want to challenge you to step it up a little bit. I want to challenge you to pause and consider that your relationship with God does not in 2019 have to look exactly like it has looked in 2018 and 2017 and 2016. Something truly unique could occur, and I'm going to use David to do it. Now, you may not know this, but in David's life, he started out as a lowly shepherd boy. He was the youngest of his father Jesse's uh, sons. I believe there were eight in total. He eventually became a military hero. He was a musician in the king's court. He wrote many of the Psalms in the middle of your Old Testament. Eventually, he was an outlaw for some time, running for his life. And finally, he became a king. The previous king, Saul, his predecessor, hated David, set out to kill him, spent three and a half years chasing David like a wild animal through the wilderness. His entire family, if you didn't know this, David's, was kidnapped, if you can believe it, and David had to rescue them. David, in order to survive one episode in his life, had to fake being a crazy person. He had to fake insanity just to stay alive. He captured an entire city, named it Jerusalem, called it his own personal possession, and made it the capital of God's nation, Israel. He had an intense, troubled relationship with his children, Dysfunctional doesn't begin to describe the family of David. And most of you also know that he was publicly scandalized, humiliated, outed, if you will, over his adultery and murder of a man by the name of Uriah. So when you think about that resume and you examine a life like that, you might come to the conclusion, what could I possibly have in common with someone like that? Why in the world would we compare my life in all of its ordinary routine to the life of David. See, David's life was so unusual, we would think it's impossible for any of us to identify with it. We might assume David to be some kind of spiritual superman, or he had superhuman abilities. But in reality, I want to remind you, the Bible makes this perfectly clear, God does not work that way. The men and women in this book were every bit as ordinary as you and me. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, the word called means when you were drawn by God, when you started to respond. Think about who you were when God called you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world To shame the wise, not that you're foolish or I'm foolish, but that the world, that man in general might think we're foolish. 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Why would he do that? Why does God work that way? So that no one may boast before him. Remarkably, David lived an outrageous life. And at the same time, he became a man with an unusual connection to God, a man after God's own heart. Now, most of us are too modest or too humble, even if we're just pretending to be so, to ever make a statement like that about ourselves. Many of us are, are too shy in our faith walk, or, or, or we're, we're just too um, discouraged in our faith walk to ever put ourselves up with someone like David and think we have anything to contribute. But let me remind you of something. Isn't it ironic to you that a man with his hangups, with his baggage, a man with his failures, moral and otherwise, can be considered a man after God's own heart, meaning he possessed something truly unique with God. That in itself led me this past week to write down three very legitimate questions I want you to consider. Here's question number one. What if it were possible to possess something unusual with God in spite of, and you fill in the blank. What if it were possible for you to possess something truly unique and unusual with God in spite of, and you fill in the blank. In spite of an illness. In spite of failure. In spite of an addiction, in spite of your marriage problems, in spite of your dysfunctional family, in spite of your financial indiscretions, what if it were possible for anyone, I mean anyone, to possess something truly unique, unusual, special with God? David did. David was a man after God's own heart in spite of his moral failure and infidelity. David was a man after God's own heart in spite of his dysfunctional family. David was a man after God's own heart in spite of his abuse of power and corruption for a time in the kingdom. David was a man after God's own heart in spite of his less than ideal career path. Again, what if it were possible to possess something unusual with God in spite of you fill in the blank? David did. What makes him any different than you or me? Here's question number two. What if it were possible to possess something truly unusual with God and not be aware of it? What if it were possible to possess something unusual with God and not even know that it's unusual? Not even be aware of its uniqueness? I'm sure David had no idea that his epitaph would one day read, a man after God's own heart. It's not like he made hats or t-shirts or bumper stickers. Shake my hand, I'm proud to be a man after God's own heart. David had no idea that he would be chronicled in that way when he was failing, when he was stumbling, when he was struggling, when he was running, when he was depressed. Do you know that David wrote many of the Psalms And often when David writes, his faith is high, it's strong, you can read it, you can hear it. But sometimes when he writes, his faith is weak, almost cowardice, 
Sometimes he's worshiping. Sometimes he's crying. Sometimes he's singing. Sometimes he feels like he's dying. What if David was completely unaware that he truly possessed something unique, unusual with God? What if you are making God smile and you don't even know it? I kind of, I don't really like that analogy. It's a tiny bit juvenile. We use it in pre-K back there. Today we're going to make God smile by singing from our heart. But what if you, with all your hang-ups, with your past, with your struggles, what if you were making our creator smile and didn't even know it? I don't think David knew it. What if one day we're all surprised to know we're standing around scratching our heads when we realize the people that got it? Well, what if God looks at, at someone one day that we disqualified and says, well done, you're a good and faithful servant, and we're blown away? That tells me that it may be possible to have something already that is unique. It's special with God. It's personal and not even be aware. You see, David had no real assurance that his connection with God was anything other than ordinary. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. So, here's question three. What did David have with God that perhaps I do not? I think this is the most important of the three. What did David have with God that, that maybe I don't? What did David know that maybe I don't understand? What did David do that I've never thought of? I mean, if David's life teaches us anything, it teaches us that spiritual success, as we would put it, or as we would define it, isn't really spiritual success. What if our criteria for such an honor, wow, check them out, that one walks with God, that man knows God, that woman knows God. What if our criteria for such an honor, it's just all messed up. It's all backwards. It's all upside down. What if we'd, we've applied some sort of cultural qualification or better yet, religious church qualifications to something that is very simply defined in scripture? What if the destination is not the goal? What if praying and reading your Bible every day of the 365 in 2019 is not the goal? What if being able to stand before others and pray with eloquence in public? But what if that's just not the goal? What if giving more to the church or the cause than anyone else that you know? What if that's just not the goal? What if it's much more simply defined in Scripture? Let me, uh, let me read you the story of how David was selected David, as you know, was not the first king of Israel. He was the second and greatest king of Israel. God told Samuel, as we'll read in a moment, I want you to go down to Bethlehem, go to the household of Jesse, look at his sons, and I'm going to tell you to pick one to be the next king. In fact, read with me in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Do you know the story of Saul and how he became the first king? 
God wanted to remain the king, the leader of his people Israel. God wanted to be the leader, the king of his nation. But the people wouldn't stand for it. They wanted a king like every other king. Every other nation has a king. We want a king. So all eyes turned to Saul. The scripture describes Saul as very kingly, filled with charisma. He stood head and shoulders above the other men. He was strong and probably handsome. Remind you of anyone? I'm sorry. But God rejected him. God said, you're not the one. So Samuel, stop mourning for Saul. I've got my eye on another. Keep reading. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come, to the sa- I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Well, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Do you know why they trembled? Because back in chapter 15, word got out of how Samuel, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, executed the Amalekite king Agag, and it was brutal. So when the elders heard that Judge Judge Samuel is coming, they trembled. They said, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Watch this. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Consecrate yourselves. You ever heard someone say, at our church, we wear our Sunday best. You ever heard someone say that? At our church, we dress up in our finest attire. That's where they get that. You see, in the Old Testament, anytime you were about to sacrifice or worship, you did two things. You consecrated yourself, which means you cleaned yourself up, both on the outside, your garments, and on the inside, your conscience. Consecrate yourselves, Samuel says, and come sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab would have been Jesse's firstborn, probably this big, tall, strong, handsome athlete of a kid. And Samuel thought, that's king material right there. But watch. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. Now watch what comes next. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we're not going to read anymore. You can read the rest in your small group discussion this week. But one by one, seven in all, Jesse's sons filed past Samuel, and each one of them looked more kingly than the first. Each one of them looked every bit as qualified as the next. But God rejected all of them. Because God doesn't look at things the way we tend to look at things. So Samuel asked Jesse, well, aren't there any more? And he says, well, I've got my youngest. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Remember a few few weeks ago at Christmas, we talked about being a shepherd in a family was usually reserved for the little one. Stick them out there. It's not a very important job. Get out there, watch the sheep. That's where David was. And when Samuel saw David, God revealed to him, now that's the one. Author W. Philip Keller writes, 
God does not see as man sees. He does not measure character by charisma, I would add, as we so often do. He does not defer to human values. God's chief criterion for selecting special servants for mighty purposes is, are you ready? Hold on to your hat. Are you willing to do my will? Period. This is the acid test. Are you willing to do what I'm asking? Are you willing to do in 2019 what God asks you to do? And deep down, you know what a couple of those things are already, don't you? In spite of all your other shortcomings, in spite of all my other failures, in spite of your being totally unaware that the process is unfolding around you, the acid test is simple. If your first consuming desire is to simply follow after God best you can, with all your might, with all your heart, then you, like David, possess something truly unusual with our Father. So, in light of question number three, what did David have with God that perhaps I don't? Let me suggest three things. David understood, first of all, that God's method for choosing servants runs contrary to human reasoning. That's the first thing he understood. You didn't have to tell David that God doesn't look at the things we tend to look at when making his judgments. God looks at the heart. David already knew it. Even that, listen, that means even the litmus tests that are spoken and even unspoken that we use in our churches, according to 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, are missing the mark. They may even be impossible since God can see inside and we can only see outside. You see, God has the ability to see and understand things that we cannot So perhaps if you've been turned down politely by this church or another church like it, don't be discouraged. Please, don't be discouraged. Sometimes we don't get it. David would have been shot down in some of the very same ways that you've been shot down. Someone would have looked at his past. Someone would have known his secret. Someone would have been there when he failed and they'd say, uh-uh, no, you don't want him teaching our fifth grade boys, right? You could say the same with Moses, with Paul, with Peter, with Pastor Mike. Because you might not fit in culturally with the religious elite, don't be discouraged. That doesn't mean God has somehow disqualified you from possessing something special. Here's something else David knew. David knew that a heart fully committed to God overpowers every other factor. The simple childlike devotion to God. Yeah, I got my baggage. Yeah, I've got a long list of failures in my past. I wish I could forget. David knew that all of that gets trumped by simple childlike devotion and a heart after God. You see, this part here is not difficult to define at all. It may feel subjective at first, but, but, but think about it for a minute. Whenever you read through the Psalms, whenever you read through the historical books and the story of David, there are three parts of David's faith that bubble to the surface constantly, repetitively, over and over. The first is his spirituality. We would call it his faith walk, his connection with God. It mattered to David, and you see it 
in his writings and his behavior. The second thing that bubbles to the surface is his, his integrity. David didn't always do the right thing, but David was committed to the right thing. Honest with himself before God. And thirdly, his humility. David understood his tiny insignificance in God's grand scheme and plan. So let me ask you, is your faith walk personal? Is it personal? I didn't ask you if you come to church more Sundays than not. I didn't ask you if you give. I didn't ask you if you make sure your kids are in Sunday school. I'm asking you, is your faith walk personal? Is it, is it personal? Is it a relationship? Do you really love the Father? I mean, love him. Is Christ real to you every day, not just Sunday? Do you practice habitual honesty before God and before self? I mean, in your private moments, when it's just you and your thoughts, do you sense your own accountability before God? David did. And are you willing to allow God to lift you up instead of demanding other people do it or lifting yourself up? David was. The third thing David knew was that God's method of training uses the common to manufacture the uncommon, and it takes time. God's method of training, of molding us, of shaping us, of using us, it uses the common things to manufacture the uncommon. You see, before David was elevated to the throne of a nation and became the king that Israel would forever talk about, before he earned that title, the man after God's own heart, he was in training. He didn't graduate from the university. He didn't come from the family or the social structure. He didn't attend the church. He wasn't a part of the in crowd. He was a shepherd. And then he was a soldier. And then he was a husband. And then he was a father. And the list goes on and on. In fact, Solitude, routine, insignificance, monotony, reality. Those are the tools that God used to fashion a man after his own heart. So if David can do it, why can't you? Why can't I? And notice that David didn't set himself up to experience something special during one event of his life. Hey, I just killed a giant. That means that God and I are going to get tight. That's not the way he looked at it. It was ongoing. It was incremental steps. When David's family was falling apart, do you know how dysfunctional David's family was? Multiple wives, multiple infidelities. One of his sons raped one of his stepdaughters. Another son avenged that sexual assault and killed the first son. His eldest son tried to overthrow David, the king, by murdering his own father. Man, you talk about modern family and modern family problems. David knew him, and yet David is known as a man after God's own heart. How can that possibly be? I wanted to show you this morning how that can be. Because it is possible possess something special with God in spite of your failure, in spite of your past, you fill in the blank. It is possible to hold and know something unique with God 
but not even be aware of it, really, because we're always looking forward and always comparing ourselves to others. So the real question I want you to consider is, what might David know that you don't or I don't? And I think it's this. David's simple heart intention is to go after God. It's to follow him best he could. Warts and all. Two things I leave you with. It is in the ordinary things that we prove ourselves capable of the extraordinary. David's life teaches us that. And when God develops inner qualities, he is never, ever in a hurry. And that burns me up. I wish he'd hurry up. I wish he'd make something of me that made me feel good about myself. But that's a selfish desire. David, the man after God's own heart. What is your name? I'm looking around. There's Ed, there's James, there's Janice, there's Sarah, there's Melinda, there's Andre, there's Paul, and there's Mike. Why can't we be known as a man after God's own heart? I'm going after it in 2019. How about you? Let's pray. Father, there is no doubt we're all seeking more. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. And no one wants to force a church or force one of your followers to try and climb some sort of ladder of spiritual success. That's not what this is about. Maybe this is about letting ourselves off the hook a little bit. Maybe this is about refocusing what should be the matter of priority in our personal faith walk. Maybe this is about humility. Maybe this is about simple heart intention. God, I pray this whole church, every one of us, will simply, quietly, humbly go after you this year, like David did. And I pray it because of my faith in your risen son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. It always is. I'll see you next time.